Uh, tonight, we are concluding this series that we've been in, going through the first section of the book of Acts. Um, and the question that I want you to think about is, is, who are you tempted to write off or dismiss or maybe just outright reject as uh, being less than or being disqualified, uh, maybe too sinful or, or off limits? Put another way, what, what's a belief or position that if you found out that someone held that belief or position, you'd no longer be interested in any sort of relationship with that person? Who, who are those people? What are these categories? Maybe for you, it's politics, right? Maybe it's leftists or the woke or alt-right people, um, Democrats or Republicans. Maybe for you, it's, it's for some reason, you just really can't stand those pesky, independent, unaffiliated people in the middle. Um, maybe it's where uh, people land on the utter chaos that is our culture's current discussions around gender. I think this is less and less true, but a few years ago, and maybe actually just a handful of months ago, perhaps it was someone's vaccination status. Uh, maybe it's, it's specific beliefs around sexuality. Who are the people that you're inclined to reject? I want you to keep them in the back of your mind tonight. The story that we're looking at tonight to conclude this series is... Uh, is a story that I think if we'll allow it to speak to us, it starts to turn upside down our categories of who's in and who's out. And through it, I think the challenging and hopeful message is this, that God is after us all. Christianity is a faith of scandalous grace. Um, and if you're willing to go where God prompts, to join who God nudges you to join, uh, you might be surprised with who you end up building the kingdom of God with. So tonight we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 8, um, verses 26 through 39. The story isn't very long, uh, but there is a, if, if you start to unpack sort of the religious and cultural context of the story, there's just so many layers uh, to what's going on here um, that honestly we could, we could do a, I, I think I say this all the time, we could do a whole series on just this one story. Um, but obviously we only have tonight, so we're only going to scratch the surface. Last week we were in Acts chapter 5. This week, we're jumping into chapter 8. So obviously, some things have happened there in between um, last week and this week. So to fully appreciate our story, we need to know where we are in the larger story of Acts. And um, I think maybe it's best to just do a quick recap of the entire book of Acts up to this point. Um, so the book starts, it opens in Jerusalem with the already resurrected Jesus spending time with teaching his disciples. Uh, he tells them that he's going to go away but promises to send them the Holy Spirit. And he commissions them to minister to the entire world. And then he disappears. Ten days later, he shows, uh, the, the Holy Spirit shows up, empowering the disciples to preach and heal and do a lot of the same things that Jesus did. They continue to preach uh, to their fellow Jews, and their numbers grow rapidly. And the whole time, they're continuing to clash with the Jewish authorities that Jesus clashed with that ultimately resulted in him being killed. Uh, the persecution against the the growing church intensifies until it reaches a boiling point when the Jewish authorities stone a man named Stephen to death. Uh, Stephen was a beloved and devout a member of this new fledgling Christian church. And so when he's killed, all the Christians that had been concentrated in Jerusalem, they all scatter. They all flee out of Jerusalem, uh, but they end up preaching to wherever they end up, to wherever they go. Uh, and that brings us pretty much up to our story about this guy named Philip. Fantastic name. Uh, this is not 
the Philip who was one of the 12 disciples. That's a common misconception. This is Philip who was a deacon, which means he was a trusted leader in the church. And uh, he, along with the rest of the church, has just fled this persecution that's um, sparked up in Jerusalem. Uh, So we're going to read the story, and as usual, we're just going to stop and talk about stuff as it comes up along the way. So again, this is Acts chapter 8. We're starting in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. Okay, so we are introduced to this fascinating character, the Ethiopian eunuch. And there are so many layers surrounding this character and this interaction that we're about to witness um, that honestly, gosh, I just wish I had time to talk about more than we're going to talk about tonight. But um, let's just get into a little bit about what we're told right off the bat, and these are things that we often just miss um, in our current context. This character isn't given a name, but he's rather addressed by two different identity markers. We're told he's an Ethiopian and he's a eunuch. We're going to talk about both. First, he's Ethiopian, um, which right away means he's foreign, right? He's not Jewish. He's not Hebrew. He's an outsider. Uh, At this time, Ethiopia was not where it is today. Uh, It was a region right below Egypt, just south of the Nile, and it was considered to be the end of the southern world. Um, and, and the people of Ethiopia were largely unknown. Judaism had actually spread to this region sometime earlier, so there were pockets of Jewish people in Ethiopia, but Ethiopians were in general considered to be mysterious and exotic. Uh, there wasn't a lot of interaction between these two groups. The second identity marker of this character is that he's a eunuch. Now, eunuchs were males who were born, uh, were either born with physical abnormalities or much more often Uh, They were um, males who were castrated before they hit puberty. And then they were given as servants to important um, royal women, queens, princesses, people like this, uh, because uh, they could be trusted to work closely with these women without fear of them impregnating the women and hijacking the bloodlines of these royal families. Uh, But the lack of testosterone when they finally did hit puberty, often resulted in them developing into men that at the time were described as effeminate or soft. They were called unmen. Um, and even though they held prominent positions in society, like this, this character that we're being introduced to is the treasury, treasurer of an entire nation, uh, they were confusing often. They were often confusing to the rest of the population, and they were therefore scorned and ridiculed. Uh, one historian writes this, Uh, The appearance and behavior of eunuchs represented the antithesis of appropriate male behavior. The eunuch was scorned as shameful, neither man nor woman, a monstrosity, an outsider. So this character is on multiple levels, the ultimate outsider. But we're told that he's on his way home from worshiping God in Jerusalem, which again is where the temple is. Even though he's Ethiopian, he's he's not Jewish, uh, which might seem odd to us, but there is a category of people who uh, were called God-fearers. These were people who were not ethnically Jewish by birth, but still worshipped Jewish God. Um, Knowing this, at first glance, then, it's not very strange that he's returning home from the temple and reading a scroll of Isaiah, which is a a book of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. Um, Though he's a Gentile, though he's a non-Jewish person, he could still become a full convert to Judaism. 
What is strange about this story, and something that we might not necessarily pick up on, is that as a eunuch, he never, ever, ever, ever could become a full convert. Because uh, he was forbidden from worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem. Despite the fact that that's where he's coming from, he was forbidden from worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem. Um, a, A law from the book of Deuteronomy, which is the fifth book of the Old Testament, we talked about it last week, it is the last book of a five book series that make up the law. One of the laws in Deuteronomy says this, no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. Um, How many of you growing up in Sunday school remember that memory verse? Uh, That is rough. Eunuchs weren't allowed to fully worship God. They weren't allowed in the temple. They weren't allowed full access within Jewish culture. Why, you might be asking. Uh, That's certainly what I was asking as I researched this. And everything I came across said, to the best of our knowledge, we think that this law existed because in these ancient cultures, many people who were eunuchs became eunuchs, either by their choice or by someone else forcing it on them, as part of some sort of religious ceremony in which they were dedicated to a foreign pagan god. And the thought was this made them fundamentally and ceremonially unclean and impure um, forever, and therefore they could never enter the temple of God. The other issue was... Uh, To the people of Israel, their God-given mandate, the most important thing for them to do is be fruitful and multiply. They saw this as perhaps the greatest act of worship that they were capable of. The highest honor of their lives was to have children, to grow the nation of Israel, uh, to procreate, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. So there was unfortunately a tremendous amount of shame uh, around if you were unable to produce children. But it was especially shameful if your ability to uh, create children was willingly or otherwise intentionally destroyed. And that meant that you were unable to fully participate in worshiping God. Um, We know exactly how Jewish people during this time, or at least some Jewish people during this time, thought about eunuchs, thanks to the writings of a very famous Jewish historian named Josephus. Uh, Josephus was born around the time that this story would have taken place. And he writes this a few decades later. Uh, He says, Yet let eunuchs be had in detestation. You should avoid any conversation with those who have deprived themselves of their manhood and of that fruit of generation which God has given to men for the increase of their kind. Let such men be driven away as if they had killed their children, since they beforehand have lost what should procure them. For it is evident that their soul has become effeminate and they have transfused that effeminacy to their body also. You should treat them as you do any other monstrosity in nature. Sheesh. That's awful. I want you to notice in in sort of these beliefs or this posture that's being held here, how much the idea of, um, how much the idea that you are what you've done or even that your identity is what's been done to you, how much that permeates these ideas and this posture towards others. Uh, In this context, obviously, it's it's the thoughts and postures towards eunuchs, but it's a larger stream of thought um, where where people's entire identity is forever distilled down into something that they did or something they were forced into in the past. So all of this is is the backdrop. It's some layers of what, what is going on here that's so easy for us to miss. And I think all of that context makes this character of the Ethiopian eunuch so intriguing. Think about, think about it. Here's a man who loves God, who travels to Jerusalem to go to the temple. 
likely very aware of the fact that he cannot enter the temple to worship and that he will be treated poorly just going to Jerusalem. That should pique our interest a little bit. Why would he do this? As a eunuch, he could never, ever fully worship God with the rest of the people. And he had probably been made painfully aware of that when he was just in Jerusalem. Based on everything we talked about and read, there's no reason for him to... There's no reason for us to think that he was surprised by not being allowed to worship there. And yet here he is on his way home, continuing to read scriptures from this um, belief system that just disqualifies him outright. What a fascinating, fascinating person. I want to know more. Let's keep reading. Picking back up in verse 29. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Um, So that, that phrase, go to the chariot and stay near it, kind of the words of go and stay near are these, this, these Greek words that have this connotation of like join or glue yourself or attach to. It's, it's very direct. It's very involved. It's very close and interactive. What Philip is being told is go join this man that you've been taught your whole life is an abomination. We miss that contextual layer of the story. So he runs up to the chariot and he hears him reading from Isaiah. And um, this isn't very important to the rest of the talk, but if your brain works like mine does, uh, first of all, I'm sorry, uh, but you might be wondering, if he's reading to himself, why, why is he reading out loud? That seems weird. Something weird that I learned uh, a decade ago when I first researched this passage, this is just trivia that you can store away wherever, reading silently is a relatively new thing. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Uh, as late as 400 AD, we have writings from a guy named St. Augustine, Uh, talking about how weird it is (laughs) that a particular bishop friend of his would read silently. So for most of the history of reading, people have read out loud, which is just weird. Uh, Today, that would be very odd, but uh, it was totally normal back then, and it made this whole story possible. So uh, picking back up in verse 32, this is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. This is from the book of Isaiah. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. So Isaiah is this uh, book uh, of the Old Testament, based on the prophet, the, the sayings of the prophet Isaiah that contains prophecies about the Messiah, the person that will come and usher in a new uh, restored kingdom of God. And something interesting that I think is at least being alluded to here uh, and maybe is, is much stronger than an illusion, it, it may be why the eunuch is reading this portion of this book. Um, just a bit further down in the book of Isaiah, Uh, Isaiah makes another prophecy about what the restored Jerusalem would look like in the age to come after the Messiah has restored things. And Isaiah writes that in this restored kingdom of God, eunuchs, specifically eunuchs, would be honored by God with a memorial in the temple, a temple that they're currently not allowed in. And it specifically says that they will be given an everlasting honor better than sons or daughters. 
which means that in the restored kingdom, eunuchs will be giving, given an honor above the highest honor in Jewish culture of procreation, of having children. Since that was taken from them, they will be given an honor even greater. So the eunuch is reading about promises of the future and and hoping of what that might mean, which is obviously good news for the eunuch. Picking back up in verse 36. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here's water. (laughs) What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again but went on his way rejoicing. There's a lot going on in this conclusion of the story. Um, But let's start with baptism. Baptism is a sacrament. It's what we call a sacrament, which is similar to communion, which we're going to observe together later tonight. Uh, But it's a physical representation of a spiritual reality. Baptism is a public proclamation of following Jesus. Uh, It represents the washing and purity of forgiveness, but also Christ's death and burial as, as one goes under and then Christ's resurrection as they come back up out of the water. Baptism, the, the practice of baptism is not salvific, which means it's, it does not offer salvation, right? It is the outward physical representation of an inward spiritual reality of redemption and following Jesus. Um, so the, the eunuch's decision to be baptized tells us that after Philip has explained everything to him, he's decided that following Jesus is what he wants to do with his life. And the logical next step is to be baptized. And the eunuch's question, um, when you stop and think about it, 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 it almost makes me cry. Because here's a man who's just spent an inordinate, 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 there we go. There's a man who spent an inordinate amount of time and money to make a trip to a temple just to worship God. Uh, This man who passionately pursues and loves God despite God's followers, constantly telling him why he's unacceptable. This man who in all likelihood was just turned away from the temple. Um, This man who was just rejected. Here's this good news of Jesus and and this new way of living, and it sounds too good to be true. And he thinks, what's to keep me? He asks, what's to keep me from being baptized? I don't I, th- I don't think that question is just rhetorical. I think at this point, he's so used to hearing why he isn't allowed to be fully included. He's genuinely asking Philip, why can't I be baptized? Why can't I follow Jesus? Is this just another thing that I'm going to be excluded from? And I can't imagine his relief and joy when he realizes that there's nothing, there's nothing keeping him from Jesus. This man who has been at best a second-class citizen his entire life has just heard for the first time that he's an equal. His past doesn't matter. What he's done or what's been done to him. Though the cultures around him want to make this one aspect of his life his entire identity, what the eunuch hears through the good news about Christ is that he isn't defined by this aspect of his life. He's not defined by his sexuality or lack thereof. He isn't defined by the fact that he cannot procreate. It's not who he is. It's something that's true about him, but it's not his identity. He's no longer a second-class citizen. He is loved by God, and there's nothing preventing him from receiving salvation if he wants it. God is after him also. Two things I want to say about this story before we end tonight. 
First is that if you are here tonight or you are listening to this later um, and you've been told or have come to believe that there is something about you or something that you've done or something that's been done to you that excludes you from full participation in in the love and grace of God through Christ, I just want you to know that is an outright lie. There is no aspect of you that could possibly exclude you from receiving grace. Not your gender, not your skin color, not your sexuality, not your social status or position. None of the things that our culture is obsessed with rooting our identity in um, matter. (laughs) The only category of people who are excluded from receiving grace are those who reject it, those who don't want it in the first place. There's nothing inherently about you that puts you out of bounds of grace. Similarly, there's nothing that you've done nor anything that has been, could be done to you that God can't handle or, or that disqualifies you from grace. If you want to follow Jesus, there's nothing that you've done or, or has been done to you that's stopping you. There are things about your life that will, that will need to change. Uh, that's true for everyone when it comes to following Jesus. There are parts of our lives that need to be addressed, that need to, uh, that need to change, that need to heal. But all of that is made possible by accepting grace. It's not a requirement to be able to receive it. God is after all of us. You are not too far gone. You are loved. You are accepted and, and welcome here just as you are. We say this every week. You are accepted here just as you are. And and, not but, and, we hope that you, you don't stay the same. We hope that you learn to accept grace and experience the transformation that happens when you do. That enables you to continue growing into who God created you to be, unshackled and no longer defined by whatever it is that you think holds you back. The most important thing about you, the most important thing about any of us, is that we are lovingly created by God and 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 whether our lives reflect the love of Christ extended to us or not. So that's the first thing I want to say. The second and last thing is this. God is after us all. This story offers a challenge to everyone who hears it. I asked you at the beginning, who, who are you tempted to write off or as, as being less than or disqualified or too sinful or off limits? Might God be calling you to run alongside and join that person or that group to reflect Christ's love to people. I'm not suggesting that God is calling you to condone or validate everyone's behavior. I will never tell you that. Philip lovingly led this Ethiopian to to experience grace and love through Christ. That didn't mean that Philip validated and affirmed the entire institution of mutilating young men. It meant that he saw past how everyone else had defined this man and instead saw the unsurpassed value of this child of God right in front of him who was fervently seeking out his creator. Christianity is a faith of scandalous grace. If you're willing to go where God prompts, to join who God nudges you to join, you might just be surprised who you end up building the kingdom of God with. Will you pray with me? God, thank you that um, in your eyes, none of us are defined by our weaknesses or our strengths. None of us are defined by the failures and mistakes 
and wrong choices of our past. None of us are defined by the things that have been done to us that are still unresolved. God, thank you that you give us an identity. That you, you've created each one of us with a specific identity and a unique gifting. And you have created every one of us as a beloved child of yours. God, I pray that we would all make that the root of our identity. The most true and realist thing about us is what you say about us and how we respond to that truth. God, thank you for stories that remind us of that. And God, I pray that we would be challenged to reflect your unconditional love to the people and the categories that we are tempted to avoid or dismiss or reject. Even if we feel like or we know those people are wrong, whatever that means, God, I pray that our hearts would be softened, softened towards your children. And God, I pray that this community continues to be a place where people Find freedom and find your grace and find an, an acceptance and a love that empowers all of us to grow more into the people that you created us to be. We love you, God. Amen.